Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited for this episode. We are speaking with one of my favorite people in the world. And he is somebody who had written a book once that changed so much for me. And that book was called The Coaching Habit. Big shout out to Chris Ducker for uh, forwarding me that book because it was definitely a game changer. The Coaching Habit, which includes a number of questions that you should be asking when you are coaching people. And this is the exact process that I use when I coach my students and even here on the podcast when I'm on Ask Pat and I'm coaching people on on the Ask Pat podcast. And we're speaking about none other than Michael Bungay-Stanier. And Michael had also written a book that was very game-changing called The Advice Trap. And that speaks to a little bit about the idea that, you know, when you are speaking with somebody and they might need some help, we often default to wanting to offer advice even before we know the full circumstances. And it's more about behavior change. And we do discuss that a little bit in this episode because that's very, very important, especially if you're coaching anybody. But today, I want to focus in on his new book because, I mean, all of his books have been fantastic and I'm Sure, this one's gonna be great too, but we discuss it. And it's called How to Begin, Start Doing Something That Matters. And this book is incredible because it really dives into things that are notes of the kinds of things that I talk about in Will It Fly. Will It Fly, my book, which was published in 2015, really goes into the specific how-tos about validating and testing your ideas. And that book, combined with this one, I would imagine would be an amazing powerhouse. And we talk about it. And we talk about how do we know whether or not the direction we're going down is something that lights us up, that gives us spark, that is something that we should do. Oftentimes we're doing stuff that obviously we're not very happy about or we wish we had made different decisions prior. So how do we make sure that what we're gonna do moving forward is actually something that, like Michael says, something that matters? How do we know and have the courage to let go of something? And how do we navigate that sort of those raging waters that sometimes happen when making these decisions, right? So this is what we're gonna talk about today. I couldn't be more happy. And I just want to say a big thank you to Michael, too, because he has, since we've connected, we've become friends. And he is now also a member of SPI Pro, and he's run a workshop there, and he's involved in the conversations. Just such a cool, genuine person. He also has a TED Talk with over a million views. Just absolutely incredible. So I'm really excited. Sit back, relax. Let's enjoy this episode. Let's cue the music. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he reads negative reviews and wonders how he can help the other person, Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 527 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. My name is Pat Flynn, here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people, too. 
And I know that you want to help people. And I know that you want to make decisions that fit in alignment with where you want to go and do something that really matters. You wouldn't do something or have the drive to do something if it didn't really matter to you, right? But how do you know if you're going down the right direction? How do you keep going? And as you know, things get tough, especially after that quote unquote honeymoon period after you get going. How do you stay going even if you know that what you want on the other end is what you want? And then how do you let go if it's time to let go? So let's talk about it with one of my favorite people, Michael Bungay-Stanier, and his book comes out in January. So we got some time before the book comes out, but we get a little preview of it here in this episode. So I hope you enjoy. Here he is. Michael, welcome back to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you back on. Pat, thank you. It is a pleasure to be back on. You know, I didn't know you really the first time you invited me on when the Coaching Habit book came out. And I'm like, I don't know, some dude called Pat Flynn thinks my book is good. That's nice. And then I'm like, wait, oh my God, Pat Flynn. And since then, you know, I've been involved in SPI Pro and uh, been following you and admiring your beard and your wisdom in general. So I'm, I'm flattered to be back. So thank you. Thank you. You know, your book, again, The Coaching Habit was game changing for me. I've started coaching one on one myself to a lot of my students, especially after the pandemic and unable to meet in person in groups anymore. I switched to more of a one on one model and I just use the coaching habit model. And people have heard that on Ask Pat and I've tried to pass that on as much as possible. So I'll make sure to link to our previous episode together because that was absolutely game changing. And then since then, you've come out with another book called The Advice Trap, which I know comes as a result of a little section within the coaching habit. Can you go over that really quick? It's always a nice reminder this thesis of the advice trap? What is it? And and just remind us one more time. So the coaching habit says, look, here are seven great questions. If you can start making them part of an everyday conversation, the way you show up and change and interact with people changes. And some people do what you did, Pat, which is to go, great, I've got these questions and I'm using them and stuff is changing. And that's fantastic. And of course, there are some people who read the book and go, this book sucks. (laughs) I hate it. They're not using them at all. But there are the the people in the middle who are like, you know, I like the idea of staying curious longer and I like the seven questions, but I'm struggling to figure out what does it take to shift my behavior. This book dives a little more into the struggles around behavior change. And of course, it turns out that for often learning the tools for change is not enough. You actually need to go a little deeper. And the advice trap introduces the concept of the advice monster, three advice monsters, tell it, save it and control it. And I think of these advice monsters as the the internal drivers we have to protect ourselves, protect our ego, and keep us a little stuck in the status quo, in the way things are at the moment. So, you know, we've all had this change experience. I want to change, but for some reason I can't change. And it's often because we're more committed to the status quo than we realize. And the advice trap goes, okay, here's a here's how we tackle some of that as well as giving some additional tools around being more coach-like. I love that. Thank you. It's always a good reminder because sometimes we do fall into that trap of when we're trying to help somebody, we often default to just let's spray them with as much information as possible. And in the coaching habit, I learned that asking questions is the best way to go about it. And I've used a lot of the tactics in that book and with the advice trap in my family, with my children especially. And We've seen so much growth in the kids as a result of having them almost come up with the ideas. Almost, It feels almost like inception when you do it right. It's like, haha, I knew that that's the direction I wanted you to go down. But now that you discovered it, based on my questions, they're more likely to you know, do those things or execute or you know, really sit in those lessons. So That's exactly right. And it's worth saying, Pat, that this is not to say advice doesn't work and doesn't have its place because it absolutely does. What you're trying to disrupt is our default response to jumping in with advice. 
So I always say, look, the behavior change with those two books, The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap is, can you just stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And if you can do that, your relationships with your kids and with your partner and with your team and with your clients, they will shift. That being said, we're going to ask you for a lot of advice today. And uh, I give you full permission to, to give us that advice with relation to your next and upcoming book, which I'm really excited about because it's about how to begin. In fact, that's the title. And starting anything is one of the hardest things. And it's like physics, right? An, ob an object at rest tends to stay at rest until acted upon by an outside force. So tell us why you wrote this book about just beginning. Where did this come from? If you try and get to the core of the work I'm trying to do in the world, it's like, how do I help people be the best of themselves? How do I have them fully express themselves in the world and contribute to the world in the best possible way? I just see people often missing out on owning ambition for themselves and ambition for the world. And this book is really designed to go, look, here's how you might think about a project or an ambition to take on that is worthy of you. You know, the heart of it is worthy goals. And I want them to be worthy of you and worthy of your life and worthy of our world. I come from a, the world of self-help and self-development and at its worst, kind of the dark side of that is it's a bit narcissistic. It's all a bit kind of me and my life and trying to make myself better. And I'm like, that's part of it. But I also want you to have the courage to think about what are you contributing to this world? And how do you figure out what the real thing to put your time and effort and energy and courage into? I'm questioning why this isn't just default for people to think about our ambitions, to think about goals for us. Why is it that we often put our own real, true, worthy ambitions aside for, for something else. Why do we do that? <laughs> Life, society, I don't know, education. It's a big question, Pat. I mean, I think, first of all, depending on where you, where you sit in the world, there's a different level of base permission to owning your ambition. I start off by being a straight, tall, white, overeducated, very good-looking man. And that puts me in a position where I get to just more naturally say, look, I'm okay. it's okay for me to be ambitious. And that's not true for a lot of people who don't tick some of the boxes that I have. But even if you kind of dealt the full hand of privilege, like I feel I've been dealt, just the, the everyday demands of our lives makes it kind of easier to kind of ratchet down and play it safe. You know, we like safety. We like security. We like knowing what's going to happen in the future. Even if you're running your own business, you like that. If you work for a big organization, you've got a structure around you which encourages similar things. A worthy goal has three parts to it. It's thrilling and it's important and it's daunting. Thrilling means it lights you up. So that's the thing that we can most easily often get back to, which is like, what would I get excited by? You know, what would make me go, yeah, <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to do that. Important means it gives more to the world than it takes. It serves a bigger picture. So this is this idea of getting out beyond just serving you and going, how do I make this world a bit better? And then daunting, and this is one of the reasons that there's this resistance, Pat, is that it's like it's the edge of, of who you are and what you know and what you've done. It's you moving into being a different person that allows you to take on a worthy goal. I often think of learning tools and tactics as a bit like you plus. What you're doing is you're adding to who you already are. You're refining. It's like downloading an app on your phone. But I think there are times when we take on a worthy goal where you're like, this is you 2.0. This is you getting a new operating system for your phone. It takes courage 
and it takes support and it takes some tools as well, I think, to say, you know, taking a breath and I'm going to commit to a worthy goal. And I actually think it's things why communities like SPI Pro are really important because in that you get to not travel by yourself. You get to see other people who are taking on similar stuff to you, being brave, stepping out to the edge of who they are. And that community is an essential part, I think, of what it takes to take the leap. I love what you said about trying to figure out, well, what lights you up? In fact, that's a question that I'm trying to default to when I meet people for the first time. Oftentimes when we meet people for the first time, you ask, well, what do you do? And then we're defined by the things that we have already done versus our ambitions and the things that, like you said, can thrill us. Whenever I'm having a more deeper conversation with a kid, you know, one of my son's friends or my daughter's friends, you know, I don't want to ask them, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't think that's a fair question to ask a young kid who doesn't quite know all the options yet. But I, I rather ask, so I can get to know this person more, what lights you up? What do you get excited about? And that tells me so much more. But it's interesting because with the adults I ask this to, I often find that they pause and they struggle a little bit to find the things that light them up. And I think it's a lot of because of what you said, because what's on our mind is what's happening today or that email we have to answer or the obligation that we have after school and we have to take our kids to practice and that's what's on our mind. We don't really have time to think about what lights us up. How do we fast forward the decision to choose something or how do we discover what lights us up when it can be kind of difficult to just see? Well, I think you can look forward and you can look back, Pat. So one of the most powerful tools I know is as an adult, is to just cast your mind back into your life and think about moments where you feel that were peak moments for you. Where you, when it comes to mind, you're just like, man, that was exciting. That was me at my best. That was me being stretched and growing in a, in a way that really matters to me. And particularly if you're a parent, kind of not necessarily like the birth of your kid or something like that, which obviously lights you up, but it's more about you being the center of the stage. And it's interesting what shows up. I mean, I've got two stories that light me up. One involves me in law school doing something called synchronized nude male modeling, which is me backing onto stage naked in front of an audience of hundreds of people and going through a mock Olympic routine with another friend of mine, both of whom are you know, naked. And, and that's weird, but I, that's a peak moment for me. Why was that a peak moment for you? Well, because it was provocative and it was performative. And it was a sense of me exploring my own edges and going, okay, how brave am I willing to be? You know, there's another quick story. You know, I took a year off in between finishing high school and going to university, taught at a school in England. You know, I didn't know anything about teaching. I was 17. I was teaching a class of 10-year-olds, so not that much difference. There's a moment where a kid throws a chair through a window. And I'm thinking to myself, on the outside, this is a terrible day at work. But even now, you know, 30 years, 35 years later, I remember what it took to manage that classroom and get it under control as a peak moment. And the power of looking back to peak moments is they transcend our training and they transcend our career trajectory and they transcend the certificates we have on the wall and it transcends momentum. And it says, what, where were you alive? You'll remember that. And what do you see there that says something about you? So there's a clue to kind of the essence of what lights you up in your past. And then I think in terms of where you look to in the future, 
I think there are different places you look. There are, first of all, and you can be kind of exploratory around this. I go, look, two basic spheres. There's work and there's not work. And you may go, you know, which way you pull? Pick one. Doesn't matter because you're just exploring. And then I think you might say, what sort of scale do you want to play at? Do you want to be intimate or do you want to be broad in your scale? You know, intimate could just be saying, I'm going to work on my relationship with my partner because it's a bit broken and I want to, you know, be an extraordinary spouse or an extraordinary father or whatever it might be. And it might be like that. Or you might be the new Greta Thunberg and you're like, I'm going to try and stop climate change, <laughs> you know, and it can be any of that. So you'll work or not work and then you're talking about scale. And then, Pat, I think there's three other doors that you can push on. They're, they're all related, but this is emphasis. Is it a project? Is it about people? Or is it about patterns? Projects are where most people go, which is like, what's the thing I'm building or launching or starting or wrapping up or doing? People is more emphasis on the relationship. How am I building something there? And patterns is more about you. How am I changing myself? How am I breaking my own patterns of behavior to be the next best version of who I want to be? So I think look to the past for clues as to what lights you up and then start exploring the future by going through those three different lenses. I love how you had expressed that question of, well, what makes you feel most alive? And I want to present that question to everybody listening. When was the last time you felt alive and truly just present and joyous? Why not more of that in our lives? The beginning can be the hardest part, as you said, and I'm curious, let's move on from thinking about what to begin and what lights us up and stuff, what makes it thrilling, to then what makes it important. I think importance is an interesting term because what's important to one person is different to another. And so how do we define whether or not something is important quote unquote, important enough to focus on? And where do we even begin with that? I read a book a year ago by a woman called Jacqueline Novogratz. And it's called A Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. And she's a really interesting woman. She leads a basically a nonprofit venture capital firm called Acumen. So she is providing funding for social enterprise around the world. And she's got a TED Talk about this as well. So you can just TED Talk if you want the 17-minute version. And the phrase from that book that really resonated for me was, can you give more to the world than you take? And that feels scalable and resonant because it's about how do I contribute to the bigger picture? People listening to this podcast, everybody here is going, how do I make this world a bit better? How do, how do I, as a, a legacy, sometimes hidden, sometimes quiet, but a legacy nonetheless to actually make this important to the world? Pat, what I often do is I go, look, the starting point is to take your best guess and draft something <laughs> because, you know, you and I are both writers, we're both writing books. We both know that the first draft is always a bit confusing and a bit miserable and harder than you think. But after you write the first draft, you've got something because after that, you can write a second and a third draft, which is what I recommend in the book. And what I suggest people do is after they've got their first draft, they put it through three tests, one for each of the attributes. The first test is the spouse-ish test. So if you're lucky, you've got somebody in your life who just knows you well, who gets your jokes, who knows your patterns, who knows what you're excited by, who knows what you're not excited by, who still laughs at some of your jokes. And the first test is you imagine, and for some of us, that's our spouse. Like I've been married for 30 years and for me, it is Marcella. But for some of us, it's like not our spouse or it's a best friend or whatever it might be. Test number one, tell the person your idea for your worthy goal. And you're going to get a few reactions. One is absolutely. 
Michael, that's brilliant. I can't, I, exactly, you should definitely be doing that. And of course, that's wonderful. The second reaction is the opposite. They're like, you're nuts. <laughs> that's a terrible idea. You should definitely not do that. And that doesn't mean that that's actually the answer, but it's a, a way of you just testing your own commitment to the idea. And the third one is somewhere in the middle, which is when they go, yes, Michael, but could you stop talking about it and get on with it? Because you have been going on and on about this for years now. Get going with it. So you've got your Stoush's test. When I think about how I've worked with Marcella over the 30 years, I've heard all of those answers. For the Coaching Habit book, which is you know the book that's been most successful for me, Marcella went, do not write that book. You've got so many other things you're doing. You owe me, you personally owe me about 60 emails. I can't imagine where else you're behind on things. Get that done. And I was like, that is both good advice and I'm going to ignore it because I need to write this book. So Spousher says, the second test is the FOSO test. Like It's not FOMO, it's FOSO. And FOSO connects to important and it's for the sake of. So it's like after you write down your worthy goal, ask yourself, for the sake of what am I doing this? And that kind of get, gets to what Simon Sinek would call closer to the why of the work, the, the service of the, of the bigger picture. And then for the daunting piece, which is like you're, you're trying to find a goal that's not too big and not too small, not too safe, but not impossibly huge. It's the Goldilocks zone test, which is, you know, the story of Goldilocks, you know, not not too big a bed, not too small a bed, but just right. Well, in astrology, they call the Goldilocks zone the place in space where planets have liquid water. So Earth is in the Goldilocks zone. And you're looking for that kind of right weight of a project for your worthy goal as well. So do a draft and then put it through these tests, the spouse-ish test, the FOSO test, and the Goldilocks zone. What's the signal? How do you know that you found the one? The fundamental question that I ask myself is, I go, is this now good enough? Is this now good enough? And I've got a really kind of mathematical way of doing it. After I've done this second draft, I rate my current draft for the worthy goal against thrilling, important, and daunting. And I give it a score of seven out of each. So I end up with a total out of 21. How would I rate this for thrilling? How would I rate it for important? How would I rate it for daunting? And my rule of thumb is this. If it's 18 or more, you're probably pretty close to being on the money. If it's 17 or less, you may need to keep working this because you don't. You need all three legs of the stool. And if you haven't quite got there yet, that's fine. That's useful. You can go back and rework it till you're like, yeah, I'm kind of 18 plus on the draft. And sometimes when people have done this with me, they've gone oh man, this is it. <laughs> I just know it. it. It rings like a titanium bell. Sometimes people go, it's not there yet. I'm like, great. That's why we're spending time figuring this out. It's the equivalent of what's the real challenge here for you, which you know, Pat, is one of my favorite questions. But there's also this piece in the middle, which is like, if you've done the work and you're like, you know what? It's not perfect, but I think it's good enough. Then you get to go, right, next stage is figuring out how I commit to this. What do you say to the person who comes up with these ideas they're you know important they are thrilling and they're daunting in fact why don't you tell me because you've worked with so many people what is often the pushback and where is that coming from what are the kinds of stories that people are telling themselves to talk themselves out of actually beginning and starting and putting a foot in front of the other there's the kind of inner game that's being played which is just am, am i able to give myself permission to be ambitious, to be ambition to claim my worthy goal. 
And that, that's part of it for sure, which is like, you know what, you're worthy of this. There isn't a demographic for whom this is a, a better fit. You can be young. Gen Z, you know, these uh, young 20-year-olds, they're like, <laughs> they're on fire to save the world. And I'm like, man, I admire your courage and your naivety and your bravery and your determination to figure that stuff out. You know, you can be, as many people are, kind of at the end of their formal career. And as a writer called David Brooks, he says, it's time to climb the second mountain. First mountain is your career. Second mountain is legacy. So you're in that place there. You can have 80 hours a week to work on this. You can have four hours a week to work on this. It doesn't really matter. The first step is to give yourself permission around it. And then, Pat, in my experience, people move through the process of figuring out what the worthy goal is fast enough. And there's not that much resistance once you get into that, that kind of part of the process. But crossing the threshold, <laughs> that gets scary for people because they go, I don't know where I'm going. And actually, that's one of the great metrics that you're on the path which is a friend of mine, Liz Wiseman, who wrote a wonderful book called Multiplier. She said, look, a good project is when you know how to start, but you don't quite know how to finish. I'm like, that's perfect. When you cross the threshold, you need a few things. One is you need to know that you should be traveling in small steps. This is not like typing into an address on Google Maps and just kind of ending up at your destination. It's much more like you're, you're in the wilderness. There's a mist-covered valley below you. There's a mountain ridge up the top there that you're kind of aiming for, you think, and you're trying to feel your way forward a bit. So it's this willingness to be in ambiguity and uncertainty as you take small steps and moving forward. And I think also it's about making sure you're traveling with the right people. You know, it's really hard, and I'm going to basically say impossible, to do this alone. You need different types of people around you to help you get across here. And I think one of the things we mistake you know, particularly in our North American culture, you know, you're in the US, I'm in Canada, which kind of is worship the individual a bit, is to go, look, my job is to be the solo hero in this. I'm like, no. You look at anybody who's successfully taken this stuff on, they built the right people around them to help them travel like that. And I think the final piece, Pat, is just that people don't realize that stumbling and finding it hard and it not working is not failure, but actually part of the process. It's like you just, it, it, it is a series of gropings as you get the courage to keep going in the work that you're doing. Definitely a process of trial and error and getting over those fears of failure is really important. A lot of us have been, especially those of us who are not Gen Z, we're conditioned to believe that failure is bad and to avoid it completely. And unfortunately, when we have that thought, like I did when I first started my business in 08, it stunts your growth and it stops you from moving forward and it pushes you toward perfectionism and all these things that can stop you from actually just starting the thing and learning more by just doing and failing. And as I often say, fall forward, you're actually still moving, even if you fall forward. Here's my follow-up. You get started on something and then you start to doubt whether either you can do it or it's as important as what you once thought it was. How do we manage those thoughts after we start, which I know a lot of us who are listening mm -hmm. right now, that's where we're at. We've started something. We, it was a good idea. We had our honeymoon period with it. And now it's starting to feel like a lot of weight. Now it's a lot of questioning because we haven't seen the results that we had expected. We're comparing ourselves to others. How do we manage these stories in our head? I'm going to answer that. 
I want to turn that question back on you, Pat, because you've started a bunch of projects and I'm guessing that you've had those moments of, of doubt where you're like, this seems such a good idea six months ago. What am I doing here? How do you manage ambiguity and uncertainty? How have you built up the resilience that you seem to have? It's so funny when I hear you use the coaching habit on me. <laughs> uh, that's literally one of the questions I have. Uh, some ideas, but I want to hear some of the ideas from you first. It's right out of the book, literally. <laughs> Thank you. And I can't play that card back to you. It doesn't work like that. So it makes for a terrible interview. <laughs> <laughs> I so for me, I think about a few things. Number one, I think about how I felt in the beginning and why I'm even on this path to begin with. A lot of us are so involved in our work. We get so deep into the minuscule little things that weigh us down that we forget to look at the big picture every once in a while. So sometimes I have to essentially kind of have a out of work experience to think, well, why am I even here and doing this in the first place? There was a reason why I went down this path. Let's kind of remember that. And that might be a reminder thanks to my kids who are often the reason why I do things or because of an audience member or people who have express the struggles or the challenges that they've had. And if I can remember those things, then I can remember, okay, this is why I'm grinding right now. This is why I'm here. And that's who I'm doing it for. And that often pushes me uh, through that. Number two, I often look at how we got to where we're at now. Sometimes we look ahead and we see the path and it's hard. But then we look behind us and we remember, oh, that path was hard too to get to here. I think a lot of us don't celebrate our wins enough. A lot of us don't realize how far we've come before we have to go even further. And then the third thing is, and you had mentioned this earlier, traveling with the right people. Sometimes it's hard to read the label when you're inside the bottle. And if you're doing it by yourself, you can sometimes forget how much more you could give or what you could offer that's unique. And in sometimes, and, and in many times for me, especially in a, a couple mastermind groups I'm in, we've been together for over a decade. I mean, sometimes these people, I feel like they know me better than I know myself sometimes. And they can guide me and see things that I can't see myself. So those are three things that I think keep me going. And then the fourth and final thing is, the and, and this is for me, I know this isn't for everybody, but I very much am motivated by the reward on the other end. I almost gamify the things that I'm doing so that I can get that cookie at the end of, of the challenge, if you will. And that motivates me because, you know, the cookie tastes good sometimes. All of that is really valuable wisdom. Let me build on it and, and pick up the last thing you said, which is you're motivated by the, the reward. I'm not motivated by the reward. For me, I have to do two things. One is what you said before, which is like connect back to why I'm doing this in the first place. That's why when you're creating a worthy goal, important is part of the mix because it is the external motivation that of service beyond just yourself that will drive you forward. There's all sorts of psychological research that says when you're playing for somebody else, you play harder. The most kind of depressing type of that research is when women negotiate for their own salaries, they will under-negotiate compared to men. But if they reframe it going, I'm negotiating this salary for my family, they will negotiate in just the same way as men do. And it's that idea of going, how do I serve other people rather than diminish just my own desires and ambitions can be really, really powerful. I do a couple of things, Pat, which is slightly different from going for the cookie. I try and remember how I measure success. So maybe this is related. I'm, maybe I'm just muddling myself up here. But 
I get really clear on what a definition of success is. And most of the time, every time I've tried to figure out what the cookie is, I'm almost always wrong. <laughs> like, I don't even know what the, the outcome is. So I, first of all, I try and go, if this fails completely, what's at risk? And understand what it means to lose. Be comfortable with that. So often we kind of catastrophize around what failure looks like. And I spend quite a lot of time going, if this is a disaster, what's at risk? And I say this with my team all the time. A, a couple of years ago, I stepped away from being CEO at Box of Crayons, which is the training company I founded. And a brilliant woman, Shannon, came in to, to run it as CEO. And we spent two years, actually, a year before and a year after the, the moment of transition, coaching us as a pair and how we're going to manage this without the founder coming back to screw it up because founders do that. Founder transitions are notoriously tricky. And one of the things that we talked about, and I had to come to understand and get in my bones is, this company is Shannon's to fail with. She's allowed to have the company not work because that's her job as CEO. And I have to sit with it to go, am I comfortable with that? And I'm like, you know what? I am. If she's, you know, I'm the board with my wife. If she's doing all she can, sometimes companies fail. That's just the, the, the nature of the, of the beast. So I, I think about, you know, thinking about this book and the time it's taken me to write it and the money around the marketing. If it all fails and nobody buys the book, <laughs> what's at risk for me? I'm like, not that much. I lose money. I lose time. My ego is definitely dented. But the process was great. So with the book, this book has won for me without it even getting out into the world because a couple of months ago, my dad died and I was back in Australia as part of that. And it meant that I could write the last chapter of the book as a short homage to my dad and I could have him read it. So I could actually have him understand as best I could and most eloquent way I could just what an important person he'd been in my life and how he'd influenced me as a man and as a person. And I just, and that's it. <laughs> all, the, all the time and effort and whatever else that I put into that book, I have won because I had that moment with my dad shortly before he died and with my mum as well. So it's partly trying to figure out what's failure and what's success and to hold them lightly. That was a very rambly answer. I'm sorry, Pat. No, it was great. And thank you for your vulnerability and, and sharing that story with us. And you know, I'm so sorry to hear about what happened to your pop, but um, I'm sure he's proud. And it's cool that you were able to give him a, an homage in the book. Um, kind of worked out in that way. You know, as we finish up here, you know, again, this is this is wonderful. Thank you. I think with this idea of risk, you know, we have to fast forward a little bit, use a lot of these thought experiments that you talked about earlier. When we start thinking about our specific goals, thinking about the future of them, and not just the risk of what happens if this fails, but also the risk of, well, what happens if I don't go down this path? And this is what I often share. This is often in marketing and sales pages, you know, if you want to help a person understand that what you have to offer them is actually of value, you also have to share the other side of it, which is, here's what happens if we don't take care of this problem, or if we don't actually solve this challenge right now, you're going to continue to do this, or this might happen. And in some cases, it's very obvious, like if you continue to eat poorly and just sit all day, you're going to have poor health, and that's not good. And you know, you can focus on that. But then in like there's always a risk in not doing something too. It sounded like you responded to that. What are your thoughts around around the risk of you know not moving forward? There's three sections in the book, and the second section is called commit, and it 
absolutely speaks to this. And it asks two questions. Question number one, imagine now you've defined the worthy goal. Imagine you walk away from it. You decide not to take it on. What are the prizes and the punishments of that decision? And you need to do both, I think. Because it's not just what what happens if you don't take this on, because you can talk about that, the impact on you and impact on the people your worthy goal will touch and and the impact on the world. But you also have to understand what the prizes are for not taking it on, because there are always prizes. There there may be a bit more short-term, but you're like, don't put yourself at risk, don't put money at risk, have more time to do the other things. There's always a way that you're like, there's a benefit to not taking on this risky stuff, which is to keep safe and to maintain the status quo. And you have to ask yourself, does the the punishments of me not taking this on outweigh the prizes? And if they don't, then this might not be the worthy goal for you. And then I think you go to the similar question, but different, which is imagine you are fully committed to this worthy goal. What are the prizes and what are the punishments? What's at risk? So the prizes you get to say, look, this is what I dream of in terms of the impact this will have. But the punishment is to take a look and go, what, what is at risk? What am I willing to risk? And you need to be able to see that. And you kind of have to work at that equation to finally cross the threshold. And I don't think that we interrogate ourselves and what's at risk if we take it on and what's at risk if we don't take it on. So I love that you brought that up. Thank you. I I think a big theme here is the fact that we need to be conscious about the actions we take and the decisions that we make. I think a lot of us run on autopilot. That autopilot is controlled by outside forces and we just happen to keep going. And whether you want to call it sheep or or in the matrix or something, it's like you got to unplug sometimes to then be able to take control and make these decisions one way or another. And I love the prizes and punishments sort of aspect of this. To finish off here, Michael, I wanted to ask you, you're going down a path where you've made a decision on a worthy goal, a thrilling goal, an important goal, one that's daunting, it challenges you, you light up. It would be silly of us to think that every single person who finds a goal that matches all three of those things has actually found a goal that they should actually pursue. The the chances of 100% of people finding the right goal on the first try is is very hard. How do we, and this is the question, how do we know when it's the right time to pivot or to adjust our goals? That's a really good question, Pat. It's a million dollar question. <laughs> Which of course is interviewee talk for, I don't have a good answer for it. It's a little bit like asking, you know, how do I buy high and sell low? Uh, or no, sell sell the other way around. <laughs> buy low and sell high. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I definitely have experience buying high and selling low. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. And you've pro- like you, like me, probably also have experience of holding on to a goal a little longer than you should. And also perhaps walking away from a goal a little faster than you should. There is no, unfortunately, little kind of alert that pops up on your phone and says, you know what, (laughs) you should stop doing this worthy goal now. It's We've calculated it. The algorithm has told us that now's the time to walk away. I spend a lot of time triangulating. That's why I think this idea of who are you traveling with can be really important. I learned about this uh, North American First Nations tradition uh, about calling in the directions. And basically what happens is a way of often starting a ceremony and I'll get this as right as I, I, I know how, is you call in the directions and you call to the four different directions, north, south, east, and west, and each one has a color, and each one has a spirit, and each one has a, a, a totemic animal. 
but they often represent archetypes. So when you call into the east, you're calling into the warrior or the fighter. You call into the south, you're calling into the lover, the healer. You call into the the west, it's the magician or the teacher. And if you call into the north, it's the the ruler or the visionary. And those are four attributes that if you have them in the people around you, they will help you figure out whether this worthy goal is a thing to continue with or a thing to to move away from. I think probably the answer is, Pat, it's probably never a good idea for you to unilaterally decide to step away from a worthy goal. It's something that you talk to your people who you trust and go, man, this is hard. <laughs> do I stay the course or is, is now, or do I pivot is now, or do I walk away from it entirely? And you take your best guess and you do it as no regrets. That's part of it, which is like, you, you can never know. So you find out the best you can, you commit to the decision, you go made the best decision I could with the information I had at hand, no regrets, and then you move forward from there. I agree with that. I mean, there is no perfect formula. I think the big thing is understanding the reason why you are feeling this way about the decisions you've made and whether or not you've actually truly and can honestly and authentically understand that you put in an effort that at least gave it a chance. I think, you know, a lot of people who are in business, especially who have very little patience, are often thinking that things are meant to pivot now because we haven't gotten the results we wanted when you haven't given yourself time to fail enough to understand how to get in the right lane or you haven't given time for an audience to trust you yet or you haven't learned everything you needed to know about TikTok and how to actually build an audience there, right? We often hope for these magic buttons and when we pivot because the magic button didn't work, you got to realize it's not because you're not good enough or anything like that. It's because you expected a magic button to work. (laughs) I mean, I read a a story the other day, which speaks a little to this. I I think it was called the Stockholm Bus Exchange. I probably got the Nordic country wrong, but it basically says, look, look, when you leave the, the Nordic Bus Exchange, there are only five routes out of the thing. All the buses travel one of these five different routes. And you have to travel five miles before they actually start to branch out and start going off in their different directions and going somewhere so interesting. And too often, we get off the bus too soon. And you, there's this degree of patience, which is one of the things that you champion so brilliantly, Pat, which is like, it takes time to build an audience to get from zero to 10 and 100 and 1,000 and whatever it is that you're measuring. And it's easy enough to look at somebody like Pat, actually, and go... Pat's at a million on every metric. Pat's at a million. Damn it. I want to be like Pat. I want to be there fast. And sometimes it takes more time. But there's also the equal problem. I mean, I think impatience is a bigger problem than this, but there's also a time when we're just, we're hanging on to something too long. And there's a moment of going, how do you have the courage to let go of this and go, I I need to move on to whatever's next. That's where the sunk cost fallacy comes into play oh, I've already put two years into this, so I should keep going. And it can be difficult. And I think you said it right. You got to triangulate through other people's experiences. You have to get some other opinions and start thinking about things from all sides in order to at least make a decision, like you said, to the best of your ability with the information that you have currently. And that's the best we could do. There's no perfect formula for this. But the truth is, 
you have to get started. And this is where we want to start with how to begin, do something that matters. Talk a little bit about where we can go support you and check out the book. It, it might be on pre-order or available now, but whether you're listening to this before or after, but, but where should we go, Michael? How to begin is the website to go to. If it is before January the 11th, which is when the book's coming out, there is a pre-order offer available. What it most likely will be will be an access to a conference with me and Whitney Johnson and Apollo Ono, who's the brilliant US ice skater, winter ice skater who won all the Olympics and where we've all got books coming out in January. And it's basically buy one of those books and get access to this conference that we're offering. But when you and I are recording this, Pat, not not everything's quite been nailed down. So I may be I may have pivoted and moved on to plan B or C around that. But definitely how to begin because you'll find access to downloads and extra resources and other bits and pieces. So whenever you're listening to this, how to begin is a good place to check out. Awesome. How to begin.com. Michael, thank you so much for your work and your wisdom and your stories. You've definitely touched me and helped affect my life and my family's life and our audience's life too. So Thank you again and appreciate you always. And My pleasure, Pat. I'll see you in SPI Pro. Thank you so much. Cheers. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael Bungay-Stanier. And um, Michael, just thank you so much for our friendship and for coming on the show again. And best of luck to you and the book. It's really cool to see you doing some sort of collaboration with Whitney Johnson and Apollo Ono, who I've gotten connected with recently too. He was supposed to be scheduled to come on the show, but he had some scheduling conflicts. So hopefully we can get him in a little bit later and uh, just very, very stoked for you and the new book and I'm sure more TED Talks and other things. I hope that we get to cross paths in person and share the stage someday. Until then, I'm so happy to share the microphone with you and I'm so happy that all of you were able to listen all the way through and I hope you check out his book. You can go to howtobegin.com to get access to some of the fun things that he has going on there. And of course, you could check out the pre-order right now on Amazon, but check out howtobegin.com first if it's ready for you and Like Michael said, it's still a work in progress because the book comes out in January, which is super cool. And man, his book, The Coaching Habit, was just absolutely game-changing. If you have been introduced to Michael for the first time today and you're like, I want to read some of his stuff now, check out The Coaching Habit. It's a actually very quick read, but very impactful. And it changed the way that I teach and the way that I coach my students. So I'm very grateful for that again. And the cool thing about that is there's a success story in that book itself. And that is the fact that that book was self-published and had just gone gangbusters. It's over 6,000 ratings on Amazon, self-published, and it provides a lot of amazing hope for us self-published authors out there. And as many of you know or may know, I'm actually working on my next book. And so we'll see when that comes out and I'll share more information as it comes along, but it is something that I'm thinking about potentially going traditional just to experiment or actually just see what's even out there, see what, if any offers come in and and what that might be like. Chances are it could be just self-published again. Either way, I'm just, I need to get it in front of people because it's something that's massively important. So I'm done talking. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for being here. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can get more great content here on the Smart Passive Income Podcast coming your way. We'll see you on the next one. Cheers, take care, thank you. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session.
Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. TED Talks Daily, I'm Elise Hugh. Negotiations. Ugh, they stress me out. But they don't have to be contentious, says organizational psychologist Ruchi Sinha. In her talk from our video series, The Way We Work, she reminds us that we negotiate regularly in our daily lives. And she offers some great tips for the next time we go into a negotiation at work. You wouldn't put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros. So why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org slash teens. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Progressive. Are you thinking more about how to tighten up your budget these days? Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save over $700 on average, and customers can qualify for an average of six discounts when they sign up. A little off your rate each month goes a long way. Get a quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National annual average insurance savings by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2020 and May 2021. Potential savings will vary. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. When we think about negotiations, we think about being tough. We charge in like it's a battle, brandishing our influence and our power moves. But a negotiation doesn't have to be a fight with winners and losers. Think of it more like a dance. Two or more people moving fluidly in sync. We constantly negotiate at work. We negotiate for higher pay, promotions, vacations, and even greater autonomy. In fact, every day we negotiate just to get our job done and to secure resources for ourselves and our teams. And yet, when we go in with the wrong mindset, with our fists up ready to fight, we aren't as successful. You know why? Because negotiation is not about dominating. It's about crafting a relationship. And relationships thrive when we find ways to give and to take and move together in unison. And to do that, you have to be well prepared. First, do your research. Figure out whether what you're asking for is realistic. What is your aspiration? What do you want? And what will make you walk away from the table? This might seem obvious, but too many people don't think it through. Let's say you're negotiating for a salary in a new job. Some people, they determine their ask based on their past salary. That isn't a good yardstick. You may end up asking for too much or too little. Instead, find out the range of what is possible. Look at industry reports, websites. Talk to people in your professional network to find out the lowest, average, and the highest salary for a similar role. And then make your ask closer to that upper limit. Build a solid rationale for why you are above average and thus deserving of that ask. Let's say you're negotiating for something less black and white, like the ability to work from home, to care for an aging parent. You need to study your company's policies on remote work. Ask yourself, when and why were these policies developed in the first place? Talk to trusted mentors to understand how working from home might affect issues that aren't on your radar. And think about how changing to working from home 
might actually affect others in your team. In fact, make a table summarizing the parts of your job that can be done remotely and the parts that require face-to-face interaction. This may sound like a lot to do, but when the person you're negotiating with sees that you've done all this homework, you're more likely to get that yes. It also helps you avoid being lied to while building the person's respect. Second, prepare mentally for the negotiation. Asking for things can get emotional. They're real and complex feeling at play. Fear, anxiety, anger, even hurt. It's essential to have strategies in place to manage those feelings. One strategy is to adopt a mindset of defensive pessimism. That just means that you accept obstacles and failures are likely in a negotiation. So it's better to put your energy in imagining the ways to overcome those obstacles. That way, you're ready to respond when you face it. Another strategy is emotional distancing. That is the idea of being less attached to any specific outcome. I know it's easier said than done. We all feel emotions like anger and hurt when our core identities are being threatened. When your manager may be challenging a truth that you hold dear about yourself, like you're a hard worker and you deserve this. Try and avoid thinking of negotiations as the ultimate test of your worth. Go in knowing that your requests might be met, that it might be denied, and that none of this is a measure of your worth. Also know that if you feel yourself getting upset, hurt during a negotiation, it's okay to step back. You can leave the dance floor and move up to the balcony. Just say, let me think about this a little more. Could we press pause and continue this tomorrow? The third and the final way you can prepare for negotiations is by putting yourself in the other person's shoes, taking the time to anticipate the other's needs and challenges. What pressures may they be under? What risks would they be taking? Do they even have the power to give you what you're asking for? What ripple effects might a yes mean? When you make that request, look to balance assertiveness about your own needs with a concern for the other. As you lay out your case, use phrases like, I'm asking for this because I know it's good for my team, that I want to achieve X and Y goals and I know this is what will enable it. Arguments like that show that you're ambitious, you know what you want, but you also care for others. So many of our negotiation missteps, they don't actually come from disagreements, but misunderstanding the other person. So it's important to listen well, to ask why and why not. And you will surely find unexpected opportunities for win-win solutions. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Every day at the moment, dozens of small boats and dinghies attempt to cross the English Channel. They carry men, women and children. These migrants tell us they risk the dangerous journey in search of a better and safer life. On November the 24th, 27 people died on their way to Britain. 
this disaster underscores how dangerous it is to cross the channel in this way. It was just one of 47,000 attempted crossings to the UK this year. We're seeing the people smugglers preying on vulnerable people, taking their money, putting them into boats and not, frankly, caring whether they live or not. Attempts to reach Britain by boat have increased as governments on both sides have cracked down on the smuggling of migrants inside lorries crossing the Channel Tunnel. At the moment, we're, all we're hearing is about tough action. And what we know with tough action is that all it does is play into the hands of the people smugglers. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, said in a statement that France won't let the channel become a cemetery and called for even tighter border controls. And Britain's Home Secretary, Priti Patel, addressed MPs in the House of Commons. Crossing the channel in this lethal way, in a small boat, is not the way to come to our country. It is, of course, unnecessary, illegal and desperately unsafe. Does tougher action work in trying to prevent further loss of life at sea? Why are people still making the treacherous journey? And can a solution ever be found? Hello and welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan, as we examine the story beyond the headlines. Alistair Bunkle is Sky News' Middle East correspondent and has been covering the story from there. Well, Alistair, the government's talked a lot about tackling the pull factors that bring people to the UK, but it's perhaps the, the push factors, the reasons why people are leaving their own countries that are more relevant here. Many people are coming from or at least passing through the areas that you're covering for Sky News. So tell us about some of those push factors. Yeah, we were in Syria uh, up until a couple of days ago, and we're now in northern Iraq. So both countries that have been very, very badly affected, as we know, by conflict and war in recent years. So there are a lot of people uh, here and in this region who are living in pretty desperate circumstances. They have had a very bad time of it over recent years, and quite understandably, they've had enough and they want something better. And they think that that better life for them lies in Europe, and often it does. But for many of them, the pull into Europe is also what leads them into the tragedy that we saw on Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening. I think there'll be plenty of people who will blame British and American in particular activity, uh, military activity, particularly in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan for creating the uh, environment in which people now want to leave. Uh, The fact is, though, this is a very turbulent part of the world. It has been historically, uh, whether or not it's been international involvement or not, uh, and stuck between competing military forces and political dynamics, you have simple people and families who just want to get out and live in some degree of safety. And it's those human stories which you've been hearing, Alistair, that we want, want to hear as well. Let me frame it like this, because You know, you get these kind of glib distinctions being made by certain politicians and others who say, right, well, two basic classes of people trying to come into our country, refugees, we fully accept the right of those escaping war and and such like uh, to to apply for that status, and economic migrants. Now, they're almost, you know, very bad. You know, that's wrong. They shouldn't come. But, I mean, it's just not as clear-cut as that. There are, there are mixed reasons, aren't there, why people would want to, to leave countries and better themselves. Yeah, there are. We were talking about it the other night, actually, as a team here. 
and whether or not some of the people you you meet and you speak to what their reasons are and whether or not their reasons are, are valid or not valid and it's not for us to to cast judgment uh, you know what i would say is that everybody you know me you dermot to people living in iraq to people living in afghanistan iran etc everybody wants a better life for in particular if you've got children you want the best life for your your family and so most people are just trying to seek that whatever their reasons and justifications for doing so the reasons are myriad. Uh, often it can be persecution, it can be fleeing active conflict uh, at the moment. Sometimes in the case of a family we spoke to just outside Erbil in northern Iraq a couple of days ago, it is because the father of the family was trying to sell off one of the daughters uh, into an arranged marriage. Knowing the risks that come with it and the sacrifice that you made selling your house, selling your car. Tell me why you decided to make the trip. Uh, this is about the future, uh, because we are, have uh, some problem, family, family problems. When you make contact with the smugglers and you decide that you want to go to Europe, do they tell you about the dangers? Do they tell you that it might not work? Do they tell you that you know, you, you could die like a lot of people have done trying to cross into, into Europe. Are you made aware of all of that? Uh, no. He only say you have to go only two hours in forest and after car came to you. Uh, there's no, no danger in this jungle. So they lie to you? Say. They lie to you? Yes, yes of course. And what role do the so-called people smugglers play? I mean, what do they do? Do they encourage people to leave? They are the enablers. I think it's as simple as that. If they didn't exist, would people try and make the crossings? Yeah, I'm sure they would do, but they are the facilitators. They are the ones who, via social media channels or via word of mouth, encourage people to make the journeys. We've been meeting with some of them. He calls himself Ranzda. It's a fake name, and he won't let us meet near his home or film his face. He's a wanted man. Even as we were setting up the cameras, he's on his phone to contacts across the smuggling network, arranging documents and travel for people wanting to escape Iraq for Europe. And, he tells us, they sometimes work with border officials. Will you occasionally pay them bribes, pay people bribes in order to let people through? They are, to put it bluntly, criminals. And there's no doubt about that. They know, and that's not my, uh, that's not just my labelling of them. They they know themselves. They admit that what they are doing is illegal. But for them, it is a hugely lucrative and profitable business. One that we interviewed in Iraq uh, just the other day estimated that in the past year he'd made a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that is, that is a lot of money wherever you live in the world. It is a huge amount of money uh, if you live in this part of the world. And they take vast sums of families in order to uh, get them the visas required, uh, in order to transport them, uh, feed them, house them for as long as it might take, and get them across the border to, to the destination that they want to go to. The problem is is that the, uh, the promises of, of, of paradise and great lands that are made here in Iraq or Syria often don't turn out to be the case. And along the route, uh, more often than not, the migrants will suddenly realise that things are not as simple uh, or as straightforward as they were promised. But by then it's too late. Uh, 
بالاول لا بالاول يلا تعال we were treated they treat us like an animal or treat us like animals at first it was very kind you know we're going to make this very easy for you the journey will take a few hours don't worry about it everything will be sorted don't worry when they got to turkey his mood the mood started to change they became a little bit tougher by the time that they were in belarus basically they you know they wanted to eat or drink something he would say i don't have any more money left i can't afford to buy you guys food um, and when they say well this is ridiculous i want to go back to iran i can't live like this he's like it's too late now i've spent money on you i've got you here I can't go back to iraq so you know the way they treated us was like we were animals the first couple of days uh, they um, hit, uh, the mother and the youngest son had to sleep in the street because they had no money they couldn't afford to rent a place out they couldn't afford to you know eat they couldn't afford to do anything the elder son and her daughter managed to reach a family a relative of theirs who put them up for a few days but they been they weren't able to do that so they were literally and also, I just want to ask you a specific question, because there's one nation, I, I remember, you'll remember very recently, there's one nation whose citizens, some of them, uh, who helped British forces, I'm talking about Afghanistan, of course, who were told only three or four months ago to try to make their way to the United Kingdom through third countries because the UK couldn't get them all out during that pressured evacuation, what was it, at the end of August? And I know you've reported extensively from Afghanistan. That seems to have been quickly forgotten by the UK, that senior government ministers were saying that, saying, well, OK, you know, we can't get you on these flights, but if you can get to the United Kingdom, we will process you. Now, I, I haven't heard anything about that now. I haven't heard any, anybody saying, right, OK, we're going to make sure that we sort out um, those Afghanis to who we have a duty of care. I think there's an awful lot of disquiet about that, uh, particularly within the British media and then within the British public itself, because the public are aware of the sort of uh, dedication and sacrifice that a lot of these Afghans made in order to help uh, the British forces and, and, and the coalition forces, whether it's operating as translators or fighting along, alongside them against the Taliban. And uh, a promise was made to them. And at least the perception is that that promise hasn't been met. I was reading reports of a dinghy that did make it over to the English side of the channel on the same day as the one that capsized and caused the deaths of so many. And on the dinghy that did make it over was an Afghan who had worked alongside the British military in Afghanistan. Uh, he had got fed up of waiting for his asylum application to be processed uh, through official channels and the right way, and he decided to speed up the process, take the matters into his own hands, uh, and risk the crossing. And I think a lot of people will read that story, hear that story and think he's been let down. And the situation in Afghanistan, of course, uh, illustrates that uh, wider issue we, we, we've been questioning as to why people would want to leave. Um, no difficulty in understanding why many people want to leave Afghanistan. But in other countries, have you seen any evidence of the, the governments, the authorities themselves trying to discourage people leaving for Europe? And have you seen any evidence of aid from the EU and from the UK being devoted to making the situation and the economy there better so people don't want to leave? Um, the first part of your question, uh, there is sometimes efforts made by authorities to stop people leaving. 
it is going to be one of the questions that I ask Kurdish government here when we get a chance to interview them, hopefully, in the next 24 hours, because there's been a lot of criticism of the British and French governments for not doing enough that end. But I think actually the criticism can apply equally to uh, some of the governments in this region for not doing enough at the source. So, yeah, look, it's very limited. I mean, you don't really see a, a hugely proactive operation to stop people leaving. Um, the smugglers, you know, let's give them some credit, are pretty clever and conniving about the way they go about their business and they can cover their tracks. So it's not always easy. And the Kurdish authorities here have arrested 11 people smugglers in the last week or so. So there is there is work being done, but it is it's not enough. In terms of the aid coming in the other way, it depends what countries you're in. Um, the countries that are particularly war-torn, like Syria, like Afghanistan, have received a fair bit of aid, Yemen as well. They've, they've received a lot of aid, but the aid is often temporary. It ensures that people have maybe a dry place to sleep and live, like tents, uh, and they have access to a couple of meals a day. It is not the life that they want to live long-term, to put it bluntly, and so they go and try and seek a better life elsewhere. And I can't honestly say that if I was in their situation, I wouldn't be doing exactly the same. Coming up, one man's dangerous journey from Afghanistan to the UK. My name is Gulwali Pisale. I'm a former refugee from Afghanistan. I came to the UK as a child refugee 14 years ago. I'm the author of The Lightless Sky, and I'm a refugee rights campaigning activist. Well, tell us, Gulwali, about your journey from Afghanistan. You say it was, it was a while back, and we can, can hear your little girl there in the background. Yeah, Zoha is here. She's yeah. distracting me and disturbing me. Let me wait, see wait. if I can give her to her mom. Just give okay. me a minute. I'm sorry, because she uh, she wants to take my headphones. <laughs> of course she is. Gulwali, um, tell us about your your journey from Afghanistan, you say it was 14 years ago. You were just uh, a young boy then. Yes, I was about, I started the journey at 12 when I was 13. By the time I got here, I went through about nine, 10 countries. It took me, um, instead of four, 5,000 miles, it took me 12,000 miles. I was supposed to be with my brother. We were forced to flee together, uh, but I was separated by the smugglers earlier on. So I didn't see him for the next 14 months. And I was at the hands and mercy of smugglers. I mainly come to Britain because my brother was supposedly here. I found out along the way. And then I, you know, across the Mediterranean, the Asian scene. So when I saw the stories of people drowning in the English Channel, it breaks my heart. It, I was awake last night. I couldn't sleep because I was in a similar situation in the Asian sea 14 years ago. My boat was about to be capsized and it was frightening. It was scary. And now last night I was thinking about how cold it is and how cold the water is. Gulwali, what was your route, your physical route into the UK? So I came in a back of a refrigerator truck from Calais. Um, if the driver had put on the freezer, we would have lost our lives. Um, it was very similar to the one we saw 39 Vietnamese people a few years ago lost their lives in. I mean, it was very, very dangerous, but I didn't know to the extent of the danger. I spent uh, the month in Calais felt like three months until I wrote the book five years ago. I thought I was there for three months. And then I worked out backwards. I was actually there for a month, but it felt like, you know, so longer than it was. Uh, because of running up to lorries every night, running up to trains, being arrested and walking from the police to the jungle, walking between the jungle and the 
lunch and dinner food place walking to the church to get some clothes and get some you know warm stuff and getting some shoes it was a yeah it was not a place for humans and um I'm again heartbroken to see there's still people stranded there trying to get to safety and that place should not exist it's not for humans to live there Kawali, tell us about people smugglers. You must have been in the hands of quite a few on such a long, long journey. Yes, people smugglers. I mean, we hear about, a lot about them in the UK because the government wants to blame anyone but themselves. Yes, the smugglers are bad people. But my experience, I met about 25 to 30 of them on the journey. My family pet smugglers, they are very sophisticated business, organized criminals. Uh, but uh, some of them were nice. Some of them were human beings. Uh, and they were just doing this to feed their families and support their families. It was just a business for them. For others... They saw me and my fellow refugees as a commodity and treat us quite badly. But uh, yeah, smuggling uh, exists because there are not alternatives, safer and regular routes, um, humanitarian corridors or humanitarian visas for people to come. So smuggling is there as an alternative to uh, the failure of our governments. And tell me this. I mean, I don't know, you know whether you were old enough to be making these kind of judgments or was it made by your family and your parents. But why did you leave Afghanistan? Was it because you were actually in fear of your life or because you thought you knew you'd have a better living, a better standard of living in Europe? Well, to be honest, if I had a choice, I wanted to stay with my family. Even now, if I have a choice, I want to be with my loved one. I have not seen my mother and my siblings for the last 15 years. I left. It wasn't, uh, wasn't really my choice. It was a decision made by my family, particularly my grandmother and mother and mom to send us away for our own safety. We were a pawn between this great game of between the Taliban and the U.S. forces, the Afghan government, and sadly lost loved ones to the war. Uh, had five members of my family killed by the U.S. forces. And so we were being recruited to, to join the struggle against the occupation. And I was very keen on the idea of becoming a fighter. But thankfully, my mother saw it, that violence wasn't going to solve the problem. It wasn't a justification for more bloodshed. So she didn't send us away for our safety. Uh, so she saved us, but she also lost us. And she made the most sacrifices out of this. And when I hear people saying all sorts of, you know, hateful things against refugees and asylum seekers, it hurts because this is the last thing that people do. And these people who lost their lives, I, you know, I can't, can't bear to think about their loved ones and what they're feeling and what, what they're going through. Because, uh, yeah, when I, was, when I was dying in the Mediterranean, my boat was about to be capsized. I thought of my mother, I thought of my family, they will think, I will come home one day, but I will never come home. You know, they think I'll be, you know, I'll survive somehow. I'll make this journey, but I wouldn't be able to. They wouldn't know what has happened to me. It's truly shocking that in 21st century, in 2021, we're letting people drown. I think it's a, it's a political choice because we want to protect borders rather than protecting people. It's quite simple. So what do you say to people who say, well, look, it has to be difficult. We can't make the routes easy. Otherwise, you know, we would be flooded with with migrants from all over the world. It, it has to be hard. Yeah, it has been hard. And that's what happens. People lose their lives because you want to protect borders. So you want to make it hard. The UK is one of the hardest countries to get into. Is this the price worth paying? Letting 30, 30 people die in, in one go where seven women, a pregnant woman, three children and 17 men is this the way to do it? Like this is this is this has to be a question that we need to ask ourselves, and and society has to ask themselves, and politicians, and, and the media. We all have a responsibility, and I feel like we take very few asylum seekers compared to the rest of the world. I mean, there are thirty million refugees, half of them are children, eighty million displaced people in the world. Most of these displaced people are uh, internally displaced in their own countries. There are six million Afghans 
internally displaced in Afghanistan, 80 million Syrians internally displaced. The rest are in the neighboring countries. Uh, Pakistan and Iran host about 5 million Afghan refugees for the last 35 years or so. And so, you know, Britain, one in nine people comes to Europe. Nine of them are in developing countries, you know, Uganda, Sudan, and and uh, places in Africa, elsewhere in Kenya, you know, they've been hosting huge numbers of refugees. In we host less than 1% of the world's refugee population. Lebanon, which is the size of Como, has one in five people are Syrian refugees. I mean, we haven't been playing our fair share. France takes five times more asylum applications than we do. Germany takes seven times more asylum applications than we do. We're not even in the top 10 for hosting refugees. We're not even in the top 20 for hosting refugees. So this idea that we've been flooded and everyone is coming here is untrue. It's a, a fantasy. It's basically a myth. And we could do a lot more. I'm not saying we should take everybody. That would be nice. But we should take our fair share. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, made the following statement to Parliament in the aftermath of the latest tragedy. We are not working just to end end these crossings because we don't care and we're heartless. The United Kingdom has a clear and a generous, humane approach to asylum seekers and refugees. Yes, people should come here legally and the system must be fair. We are undertaking a wide range of operational and diplomatic work. I have already approved maritime tactics, including boat turnarounds for border force to deploy. The government, the police, the National Crime Agency are taking action at every level to take down the people smuggling gangs. And once again, however, we cannot do it alone. Let me put you in a scenario. You're sitting right now opposite the Home Secretary who's racking her brains about how to prevent more migrant crossings and, of course, prevent tragedies like that and also put in place a a fair but controlled system for for processing people, for dealing with their claims. What practically would you tell her to do that she isn't doing now? Great. So that's a very good question. So basically, the time that the government and the Home Secretary spend the energy on preventing people and deterrence, we spend over 200 million in Calais and the securitization of the border. We can simply issue people humanitarian visas. We can provide humanitarian corridors. We did this with the Dubs Amendment. We talk about, but sadly, we only talk about 480 unaccompanied minors from Europe. We can certainly provide uh, an easy access to people to come here to climb asylum safely because now the rule is, the law is you have to be on the land to climb asylum. They are not safer routes for people to do so. They had to make these irregular journeys, which is not illegal under international law. People, the way you arrive should not determine your asylum claims. You know, how you arrive doesn't matter. Why you arrive is the most important thing. And so what I'll tell the Home Secretary is use your energy to create safer routes, to create uh, regular routes, to provide humanitarian visas and to help people in desperate need so they wouldn't uh, have to turn to smugglers. Kulwali, right. I want you now to finally address for me um, a, a broader point, and it's this kind of generalised perception amongst the, the UK about immigration. And you've partly addressed it for me because I, I've heard you constantly refer to we as the United Kingdom. And that's one of the views that is held is, is that um, people who come here from overseas fail to integrate. Also, the broader point, as you know, is that um, you're a drain on the public services. You uh, take up housing, you access the, the health service, you access education and um, you don't give anything back. Now, you tell me why that's wrong. Dermot, there's so many studies been done that migration is a good thing in Britain is actually, you know, we have doctors, we have scientists, academics. I have most of my friends are basically paying a lot more in taxes than they take out of the system. And they're grateful for the chance. So most of my refugee friends are actually accountants, doctors, engineers, entrepreneurs, businessmen, employing people. So basically, 
that's a complete myth. So there's been so many you know, surveys and uh, economic analysis done which suggest that migrants in general, not just refugees, migrants in general give back than they take. When it comes to asylum seekers, you know, asylum seekers are not allowed to work. They had to live on £5.60 a day, £37 a week, which is a lot less generous than the, the, they get in France and as well as in Germany and elsewhere. So people not coming here for our benefits and our money. Uh, and also they can't claim benefits. So there are a lot of myths around this issue. But I feel like I have yet to come across any refugees who have not contributed to this country. And I feel like we shouldn't welcome people because they contribute. We should welcome them because it's the right thing to do. My thanks to Alistair Bunkle, Gulwali Pasale, and to you for listening to the Sky News Daily podcast hosted by me, Dermot Murnahan. This edition was produced by Annie Joyce, Soila Aparicio and Rosie Gillett, along with Alice Bowen. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find plenty more like it where you found this one, and we'd love a review while you're there. The climate crisis can be an overwhelming and emotional conversation. We will not let you get away with this. But it isn't just about cutting carbon emissions or reporting on disasters. On Sky News Climatecast, we'll examine the big issues in depth with scientists, policymakers and activists. Every week, we'll highlight how small changes can make a big difference as we look for solutions to climate change problems. Sky News Climatecast. Listen, follow, subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.